Decent, a halfway decent podcast about art history. I'm Mike. I'm Sarah. And we're back after the long-awaited... Like, the hiatus? Yeah, I don't know what it was. Hey, you know what? There's chaos going on, so... Yeah. Uh, so why not have another podcast to listen to? Yeah, I'm sure all the incredibly talented people out there who are actually making very good podcasts, you need our podcast to listen to. But <laughs> hey, whatever. Um, so welcome back. Uh, we've decided that our podcast might be more of a, um, not so much bi-weekly as much as when it happens. Yeah. It's, it's going to be more of a, like a surprise thing. Uh, surprise. Hey, Mike and Sarah did that again. Cool. Um, anyhow, so that is that. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by staying at home and washing your hands. Yes. Wash your hands for 20 seconds. That's right. If you listen to an entire podcast and wash your hands the whole time, it's at least 20 seconds. <laughs> That's so, ridiculous. Thanks. All right. Uh, so, Sarah, what's uh, what's the hippie happen today? Well, um, I thought we would talk a little bit about Rembrandt. Michael, sure. what do you know about Rembrandt? Uh, Rembrandt, where I'm from, is a builder. That's what I know about Rembrandt. A builder? Yeah, there's a builder named Rembrandt, oh. like a c- contractor. Oh, but, well. But uh, I no? think that's about the extent of my knowledge. That's not that's not the one i assumed we i mean building a house can be a form of art sure not the way they not the way they were doing it though <laughs> um so the answer is i don't know a lot about rembrandt other than i'm assuming he's an artist because mm-hmm. we're talking about him sure do you want to take a stab at what kind of art the kind with paint painter mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Good job. I'm going to say in the Renaissance. No. Okay. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> hey, Sarah, what do you know about Rembrandt? Well, I know a little bit more than you, I guess, in this one. Um, in so, this one. Like, I've known so much about the rest of them. Fun fact. Let's start out with this. Fun fact. Sure. Rembrandt is his first name. Not yep. his last name. That is different. Yeah. Uh, his full name, which I'm not going to be able to say it with the correct accent, but it is Rembrandt Van Rijn. That's V-A-N space R-I-J-N. It's a good change. It's a good <laughs> change. Rain. Uh, he was born in on July 15th in 1606. Okay. And um, his family were millers, like, like they milled. Oh, not like the family from Ohio, the Miller family. There was a lot of them. Oh no, no, um, that like their profession was milling. Um, and when he was young, he was enrolled in the Latin school, um, and then went on to Leiden University. Um, but he dropped out after just a year uh, to become an apprentice under Jacob Isaacs van Swedenberg. Did the apprentice for what? To be an artist. Oh, okay. 
I didn't know if that was an art school or... No, you're fine. So we haven't really talked a lot about this, um, but that used to be kind of the way the way you became an artist was you would have to become an apprentice and work in an artist's workshop, someone who was established um, in order to become an artist professionally. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Kind of like, um, um, joining a union, you have to be an apprentice level first and before you can like, well, I'm thinking of the trade unions like carpentry sure. or plumber union. You have to start off as an apprentice and work your way up to be able to be a uh, worker who can go out on their own jobs, sure. things like that. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot like that. Um, so as an apprentice, he would have learned um, some of the sort of beginning things you need to know to become an artist. So he would have first learned how to uh, construct and stretch canvases. He would have mixed ground, which is applied to the entire canvas to make it smooth. Uh, he would have learned to prepare paints, which would have involved grinding up pigments and mixing in a binder, which was usually like linseed oil or something to make the oil paints. Um, and he would have also had to learn how to arrange the paints on the palette. Would that be based on an artist's preference, like how it got arranged, or was there like a technical way to arrange them? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, as far as I understand it, it would have been, I don't know. There, I mean, I was going to say it would have been based on whatever artist he was apprenticing under, but I imagine there were probably standards for the time of hmm. how you would arrange those things. Yeah, I, I think about like at, at our work, uh, we have some apprentice level people in our um, in our company, and we make them do all the grunt work, which it sounds like he was doing. Yeah. But part of that is you learn to do that, and you're you become familiar familiar with the uh, the process and what's going on sure. around you, and so you get to observe while you're also doing things to help the higher level yeah. uh, artists in this situation. So. Yeah, kind of getting your dipping your toe in in the world. So he would have also at this time um, begin began uh, drawing using chalk maybe or pen and ink um, drawing live models would have been a thing at the workshop and eventually he would have begin to began to um, paint using oil um, and copying pictures or helping to finish paintings that the master the master painter he was working under is working on so the master would do like the faces and stuff and then he would do like here's a piece of clothing and a tree a, pr a happy little tree i mean probably more like background stuff yeah, like okay. um something that they that i read specifically was it's called dead coloring and that would have been painting the outlines in the areas of like dark and shade like the blacks and browns and grays in the background when and then the master would come in and like actually paint the painting so gotcha. it's like uh, like we were talking about kind of the the grunt work yep. um but so apprentices um were not allowed to sign their own work because as you were just talking about it's kind of funny that you mentioned it earlier um you had to be part of the painter's guild so the guild maintained control over the price and the quality of art and so painters couldn't sell without being 
established as independent masters and then paying dues to the guild. Sounds much like kind of like a an early early days labor union kind of thing. Sure. So um, he continued his training under um, a guy named Pieter Lastman. And um, so he did his training there. The next year, he becomes an independent master, and that's in 1625. So that was, he's 19 at that point? Because he was born in 1606. Mm-hmm. So, wow. Yeah, 19. Um, and that same year, he does his first work and the first one that we're going to talk about which was oh you didn't put it in uh, that mode sarah made a, a um powerpoint i couldn't think of the word powerpoint yes powerpointing um and then i forgot to start it so hey it's up though okay so his first painting was the stoning of saint stephen in 1625 when he was 19 years old so this is once again one of those things that you look at and consider yourself a failure for not being able to do that at 19. Um, This image is uh, 35 by 48 inches and it's based on um, in the bible Acts 7 uh, where Stephen was stoned outside the city for or by his tormentors. This was shows an art technique known as chiaroscuro which is an italian word that means light dark and i'm sure eventually we'll talk about caravaggio mike i know you've we've gone to some uh exhibits to see some of caravaggio's work but um he's kind of like the i would say maybe the most famous one that used this technique but it's using like super contrast between shadows and light um to emphasize different parts of the painting yeah i uh well you could i mean it's pretty obvious if you pull up this picture uh, a picture of this piece um you'll see the definite light and dark and then you can also see how it emphasizes the stoning part right so um the guy on horseback and his compadres are there uh in shadow uh on the left hand side and then on uh on the right there's Stephen and his persecutors in the light um it is theorized that possibly the guy that's kind of in the background there on um holding coats on his lap is uh Saul who's not yet Paul for those biblical scholars uh and so that's i mean that's a theory at least um and it is also uh pretty widely accepted that the face that's in the background just above stevens is actually a self-portrait of rembrandt so we got another where's waldo going on i mean a little bit um so one of the things that i read was either that it was kind of like a possibly like a hey look how awesome i am at the age of 19 kind of a thing to include his own face in this portrait you know what i am continually amazed at um talking about these different artists is how much they know about like the bible and the stories and especially the well obviously just the the religious 
artwork, not so much the ones not painting religious artwork <laughs> because we don't know. Uh, but like that he would even think to include Saul slash Paul into it. But again, it's theory. So yeah. maybe it's not any of it. And he was just a dumb 19 year old kid. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Um, but, uh, so the painting is showing Stephen, um, he is in a posture of this sort of defeated acceptance, having been wrongfully accused of blasphemy. Um, and, uh, someone said that the light that shines on Stephen is that showing that like heaven sees the events that are happening. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So that was his first major artwork as an independent master, which is pretty great. Yeah. So his father dies in 19, nope, 1630. And he moved from his hometown of Leiden to Amsterdam. And it's here that he meets um, an art dealer who begins to secure commissions for him. So in 1932, he created, what's going to be our next one? Uh, it's called The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Tulp. And mm. you can see here that Dr. Tulp is um, explaining the musculature of the arm to his colleagues. Um, there are, uh, the spectators in the painting are doctors who would have paid commissions to be included in the painting. Um, and you can kind of see, I don't know if you can tell in this version, um, but it is signed in the top left corner, um, and with Rembrandt, that's up here. Um, but they think that that might be the first time that he actually signed with his first name. He had been, um, doing initials prior to that. So this might be the first time it actually says Rembrandt. This is an intense. How do you know how big this one was? Ooh. If not, it's not a big deal. I was just looking at the detail on that um, mutilated arm, I didn't and that write is it down. incredibly impressive. Just, I mean, that that is not being able to actually look at it outside of digitally remade, but right. it's crazy. So, uh, you know, I don't have the dimensions. I wish I did. That's okay. Um, we'll just say it's uh. 28 by 14. I think it's probably bigger than that. But anyway, on January 31st of 1632, the Amsterdam Guild of Surgeons uh, met. Tulp was the city anatomist, and they were only permitted to do one public dissection a year. And the stipulation was that it had to have been an executed criminal. Oh, so yeah. there's that whole yeah, situation. Yeah, that's uh, getting a little sketch. Right. Not only was there that aspect of it, but it was also sort of like a social event. Um, it would these dissections would take place in a theater, and people had to pay an admission fee to get in. So the whole thing is a little bit like ooh, gross at this time, but hey, hey old timey people, that's weird. Right. I mean, so I get the intrigue of seeing um this section. Right. But to pay money to go see it, see I mean, I guess 
<laughs> kind of doing that by going to like med school. I mean, but not quite, not that quite extent. to that extent. And I don't know. I mean, I guess I didn't take notes or didn't read anywhere if it was truly open to anyone or if the admission being paid was by like what would be med students or doctors you know i don't know if it was just open to the public and anyone could come on in or if it was just people who were actually studying based on what i know of uh medical history is that it was bonkers so hard to say anything's possible yeah you may have been able to eat lunch with a cadaver body if you wanted to (laughs) so uh to look at the painting itself um so in case you were wondering dr tulp is the one in the hat sure that makes um, sense doing the demonstration um he's actually lifting the tendons with on the cadaver that make your index finger and thumb come together which he is doing with his left hand. So he's like demonstrating with his left hand what those tendons do. So either um, Rembrandt had some kind of knowledge or they told him about that. But either way, that's an incredible detail to add. Right. Well, apparently they told him to add this because I guess uh, people who know uh, anatomy have debated whether or not the anatomy that's actually shown is accurate so (laughs) i mean the little that is shown uh is debated so um that arm in and of itself looks like it's sitting kind of funky like it's not quite turned the right way or something i don't know it's kind of weird yeah there are some anomalies here so um first of all so you can You know, all these students are here wrapped in what Dr. Tulp is saying. So there's a couple of them that look out toward the viewer, um, but it looks like the rest of them are either looking at their instructor or looking at what he's doing. Um, But if you look a little closer, most of them are really looking past him to this open textbook that's in the bottom right. Yeah. That would have been... I mean, basically that, like the open textbook of what he's doing. So they're kind of like looking at the text while he's doing it to kind of compare. Hmm. Um, Interesting. So that is an interesting thing. Another weird thing is that um, in in the original version, the man with the paper that's just off of uh, Dr. Talp's shoulder yep. uh, was actually holding a text that showed the anatomy of the arm, um, so, <laughs> but it was repainted with the names of the sitters, the people uh, who paid the commission. So is there, well, I guess there's probably no proof of that originally because you can't take a picture of things back then. But what we have is x-rays. So that's what we know that's how we know is because it's layers of paint so they can take x-rays through the layers which is another thing you can kind of tell from just i don't know at least the image that we have pulled up this guy at the very top used to be wearing a hat yeah and you can kind of tell that it was like repainted so that he's not wearing a hat anymore so that mr tope could be the only one wearing a hat yeah yeah uh you know what tomato tomato okay So another interesting thing about this painting is that um, this does not follow the customary (laughs) dissection uh, order. 
you would normally cut open the abdomen and remove the intestines first. So it's interesting that he chose to show it like this, you know, starting with the forearm, even though that would have been considered poor surgical practice at the time. But also much less gross. But less gross. So probably if you're, you know, going to make a portrait of an autopsy, that's the version that you would want to see rather than an open gut with gross innards hanging out. So, did it, do you have any idea? Was he actually like? Did he actually get to see uh, an autopsy, or not an autopsy, a, a dissection, or was this just described to him by hmm. doctors? That's a good question. I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. Bet if he paid enough, he could. Yes. Gross. Accurate. Uh, so one more kind of weird quirk about this is that, again, through x-ray, we know this, that if you go down through the layers, the man's arm was actually, it actually ended in a stump. Uh, they know that the body, the man who was executed, um, before, prior to his execution at some point, had lost a hand. So it was based on a specific cadaver at that mm-hmm. then. Interesting. Yeah, they ha- yeah. they know the name is Eris Tkint. Hmm. I don't know. Because it was for a portrait and they didn't want it to end in, you know, a stump at the end of his arm, Rembrandt painted a hand on. Poorly. Which, I mean, you can tell that, like, so the whole length of his hand is the guy's the yeah. end of his forearm. So then there should have been, the way he should have done it was a hand at the end of the stump. But what he did was cover the stump. So you can tell that his arm is like way too short on that side. But it looks like, it still looks like it's longer than the other one. It's interesting. It also, yeah, it also looks like, um, well, it wouldn't have made as much sense if he's playing with the tendons and showing him the, the like finger and thumb thing without there being, well, I guess... Even if there wasn't a finger and thumb, you'd it still does get create the idea. a nice symmetry to yeah. have two hands. Sure, also <laughs> and that. especially if it's going to be a portrait, you're like, you know, you would rather your no demonstration guts, both hands. B- dummy be dummy. Be yeah, uh, boy. Yeah, have both hands. So that was that was added after after the fact. Um, and this piece after he created it, um. They uh, apparently loved it because he had, there's another painting that he created of another dissection. Hmm. Um, and it really established his reputation in Amsterdam after that. You know what would be unfortunate is being the artist known for painting dead people. I mean, that wouldn't be great, but I think he just did too. That's good so, because you can get really pigeonholed if you're fine. not careful. Yeah. But the interesting thing, and we'll see this again in the last painting that we look at. Um, so from uh, Peter Lastman, the guy he was training under um, before he became an independent, mas- independent master, um, was that Lastman would create um, history paintings. And so Rembrandt took what he learned about composition from history paintings and applied that to portraits which is not something that people did. Usually portraits were pretty stiff and um, 
stagnant and people were all looking at the viewer painter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the viewer i was gonna, wanted to say at the camera but you know that's not a thing <laughs> well sarah not in i don't well, know if, actually i don't know what time i don't know when a camera, camera was, was actually yeah, invented it's not not too far from there they do say though sarah that your eyes are the camera of the body do do they say that it's hard to say i said that once okay um okay but that will lead us to our final painting, which this is not um, an all-encompassing uh, discussion of Rembrandt's whole body of work or his whole life, but he did a lot of paintings. So there's time. If we uh, need to circle back to him at some point, we can do that. If by some means we run out of things to talk about. Right. Some, we'll somehow we run out of artists we can circle back to or pieces of art sure so this last one that we're going to look at is probably his most famous piece of art and it is known as the what's called the night watch but that's not actually its name um it has kind of a few different versions of an official name but the real name is something to the effect of officers and other civic guardsmen of district two of amsterdam under the command of captain franz bannock coke and his lieutenant uh willem di nope willem van reutenberg so we're gonna go with night watch the night watch yep that makes a lot more sense you know what if you think about it the plaque that they would need to write the official name would be so big right Oh, is that actually a thing? Well, a little bit. Oh, jeez. I mean, not really. Not... Okay, so let's start from the top. Okay. The reason it became known as Night Watch is that... So at the time that this was done... So this is a militia group. And um, at the time that this was painted, militia groups did not do any kind of Night Watch. There was no night duties for a militia duties duties indeed however over the years um eventually these civic guards did have some nighttime responsibilities and the varnish that was used on it became yellowed and it collected dirt and grime and got much darker and so you couldn't tell that it was actually inside it looked like it was outside and at night so hmm. people started calling it the Night Watch rather than any of the other numerous titles involving Captain Bannock and blah, 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 blah. Captain Bane. Uh, so this was, they're supposed to be inside of the building at this point? Yeah, you can see like the arch of the building in the background. I, I just assumed it was like an arch in a walkway, but nope. interesting. They're inside. So it was painted between 1638 and 1640. So we're still looking at him being in his 20s? Mm, um, late 20s? In, oh, 1606. 06, so 30s, 34. I did bad math. Yeah. So it it's happens. Fine. It's fine. It's early 30s. So the painting is of... Well, as the full title indicates, uh, Captain Coke, C-O-C-Q, 
pronounced something like Coke. That's uh, fine. And um, his lieutenant. So, Michael, I want you to attempt to identify captain and lieutenant in this picture. I would say captain is that guy, in, which is the guy in black wearing a hat and a red sash. Mm-hmm. Bell of the ball. And I believe his lieutenant is either the red guy loading a muzzleloader or this guy over here in black with the uh, fluffy neck based solely on the fact that he is wearing the same neck neckerchief. I don't even know what that thing is. That's collar. Yeah, collar. Hey, there you go. As uh, the guy I said was the captain. Okay, so you're right on the first count. Hot dang. Uh, the captain is the guy with a sash. No, I mean, that just makes sense. Uh, his lieutenant is the guy that's right beside him that he's talking to in white. Well, that was my third guess. <laughs> The unnamed third guess. (laughs) So uh, this is another example of what we were just talking about, how he took a portrait and created action in it. And this is, so this was commissioned to be part of a hall of portraits of these sort of civic guards, these little militias. And as you can imagine, the other paintings that were commissioned by two other artists uh, were the standard sort of holding their muskets and very sterile looking and positioned very properly so that everyone's faces were seen. And you can tell that this is not anything like that. Nope. It there... looks like chaos. Yeah, it is a little bit of chaos. I like the guy playing the drum peeking around the corner yeah so we're yeah we're gonna talk about some of this sorry it's okay i'm getting ahead i'm just intrigued by all the different people in this yeah there's a girl it's crazy yes okay so sorry i'm very excited okay no you're good okay so as you pointed out there's a guy playing the drums yep um so the captain is summoning his lieutenant I'm bringing him over. There's a guy back here with the uh, banner. So this would have been the flag of the militia that he's unfurling there. It is a blue and yellow flag. I approve. Go blue. Go blue. Uh, There's a boy uh, that is in the bottom left corner. Um, He's holding a powder horn. And so uh, I've read that they don't know if he was like rushing to the front to get to the people in the front or if he was running away from something at the back. Also. (laughs) Or maybe he's just real excited and just running because he's a kid. It looks like a very old person with a beard. From my perspective, it just looks real short with the beard. Like right there is the beard. I think he's he's head... wearing like a little cowl type I think, of thing. One, I think his head is actually turned. Yeah, he's turning backwards. But it looks like facing forward, and there's a beard right there. Okay, I'm pointing at things like the people who are listening to this can <laughs> see the things I'm pointing at. Can everyone see what Mike is <laughs> pointing Jeez. at? We're gonna start making this a visual podcast. Yeah. Um, I think they call that a movie. There are so... eh, True. Um, So there are a lot of things in here. So one of the things that is cool. So you can kind of not really see him. So you see this guy who is loading powder into the gun. So that's the guy in red. Yep. All in red. Then right behind the captain, right behind the guy with the red sash in the front, um, you can kind of just see legs. Yep. Um, and 
at on the captain's other shoulder you can see the barrel of the gun and that there's like a plume of smoke so okay. he okay. has just fired his gun gotcha which is funny because they're all looking like towards the viewer but he is shooting like in completely Away. different direction right um and then on the other side of the lieutenant there's a guy with a helmet yep. and he is blowing out the gunpowder from the pan okay yep. so these are there's like um i don't know if it was exactly like a textbook but it's like showing that this militia is like by the book does the steps because it's like there's um there's this image of course, I didn't write it down of where this image comes from. But these are like the three steps of using this weapon is loading the gunpowder, shooting it, and then blowing it clear. And so that's like one more uh, sort of feather in the cap of this militia of like, we have these weapons and we know how to use them properly. So not only did he like not do the standard pose them, paint them, mm -hmm. but it was like, I'm also going to put in things that shows that they are a properly trained militia. Right. That's interesting. So there's even more, um, as you might imagine. Um, so this but little... wait, there's more. Exactly. This girl that you see in the background, yep. she's a little bit of a mystery. She looks um, like an angel figure with the light shining on Right. I was like, where did this angel girl come from? And I could never figure it out. There's actually two girls right there. You can barely see the other one you can kind of see the edge of her yep. head right beside the other girl um they're wearing gold and blue which again those are the colors of the militia and good football teams sure uh Not the true. other girl that you can't really see toward this edge um she's holding up a chalice that was like lined with silver and that would have been something that they would have used at their like banquets um hmm. And the girl in the front, she basically what I've read is that those two girls are basically like the mascots of this militia because the girl in the front, she hanging from her belt is it looks like a bird of some kind um, with hanging by the feet from her belt and the a bird's claw like that uh, upward. <laughs> That was actually the symbol of the Cloveneers, which is like the weapon of this group oh. of the militia. So sure. it was like, it would have been kind of like, um, I don't know, wearing a Nike <laughs> sign on your <laughs> jersey is like, oh, they're associated with that. Or maybe like a cheerleader with the team mascot on their or logo on their uniform. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm... Just sure yeah okay. yeah like that um what else is in here there's so much i do just want to say though that uh the guy all in red mm -hmm. that is a bold move to just dress head to toe red also sure. he is the only one oh, i guess the lieutenant is head to toe white mm -hmm. there's some outstanding outfits these guys got on yeah well, and that's another one of the things is that like a lot of times um, for these portraits, everyone in the militia would wear like basically wear a uniform, wear the same thing, and they would all be 
like we've talked about posed and um you know very stiff and much more like a team photo versus like an action shot exactly exactly so this feels so much more real yeah um and one of the things that helps it feel that way um among the other things that we've already talked about is that um rembrandt plays with the picture plane a little bit so this halberd this spear thing that the lieutenant is holding if you look at the shadow and the way it is he painted it the halberd is actually like breaking the plane it's like it's as if the point of that spear goes beyond the edge of the painting and into (laughs) the viewer's space interesting so that is we'll get another art term in here so that is a technique known as foreshortening so you are portraying an object closer than it is or as having less depth or distance to kind of give that look like it's coming out toward the Much viewer. Much more like a 3D. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah. Was I'm assuming he's probably not the first person to do something like that. But... No, I can't. Okay. There's there's lots of examples. I'm sure we'll get to more. Yeah. But So was he kind of one of the first people to um, kind of use this technique of action versus like stiff portraits well i don't know about being one of the first at least in in that community um he certainly was and it is kind of debated whether or not um the people who had this commissioned actually liked the portrait um but i read somewhere that he would have there's not a lot of changes that happened to this portrait from like the first, you know, when they did x-rays and things, um, it didn't change a lot. So they think that he probably had to like submit sketches because there are, I think 18 or 16 individual people that would have paid commission. They had to pay a hundred guilders a piece. I don't know what the that's like I don't know what the exchange rate is on dollars that, in but they said it was quite a bit of money. Oh, geez. Um, I mean, also I haven't mentioned this. Let me see if I have it written down. But this is huge. This painting, like enormous. So it was eleven feet by almost well fourteen and a half feet. Almost twelve feet by fourteen feet. Yeah. Dang. So it is real big. It was, like I said, it was commissioned to be part of this, like, hall of portraiture. So it was made (laughs) real big. So then they had to move where the portrait was going to be hanging. They were moving it to City Hall. And where they wanted to hang it, um, it was between two doors, and it didn't quite fit. They ended up cutting down the painting so what we see today that painting that we know um there were actually on the left side there were two more adults and another child figure does that mean someone who paid money got cut out possibly i mean i don't i think they know who all paid commissions but i don't know i I don't have that written down probably they did but this was year i mean this was um 1715 so it was quite a quite a bit later um so this was they got the picture and then at one point they moved it and when they moved it they cut it okay so it's not like rembrandt was like oh sorry you're getting cut no rembrandt didn't do it um so yeah but anyway um yeah that's uh 
that's Rembrandt. Well, I, I wanted cool. to uh, I wanted to get dig into him a little bit because I feel like Rembrandt is another one of those artists that people know the name and like it's used as like a stand-in for the word artist, like oh he's a real Rembrandt or something. I don't know why I always say it like very sarcastically when I make these kinds of comments. Being a real Rembrandt. Oh, he's a real Picasso. (laughs) I don't know why I say it like that. But, um, you know, like I was saying though, uh, I feel like it's one of those names that people know for the most part, but they don't necessarily know what he's done. So, like I said, there was a construction company called Rembrandt Homes, and the reason was is because Rembrandt elicits the idea of like a masterpiece in artwork something like that all right well thanks again for joining us hope you guys are staying at home and staying safe um washing those hands washing your hands yeah be careful out there uh unless you're listening to this in like a year from now Mm -hmm. then i don't know things are probably different than now hopefully everything's fine no yeah um (laughs) so yeah Thanks for listening again. Um, shout out to my girl, my whiskey and me for letting us use their music. As always, they're great. Yes. Check them out. Please they do. are one of the many bands doing things online right now uh, mm-hmm. in this time of home quarantine. And if you're listening from the future, it was a rough time. So <laughs> many, many years from now when people are downloading our podcast, it's not going to, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, stay safe. Uh, thanks again. Uh, don't get out and see some art. Do not. Maybe. Someday, eventually, when all of this is over, yeah, you should all go to your local museums and galleries. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. Well, kind of sad because one of the first things to go in this time is going to be air was like museums and stuff shut down because. But there are some galleries. I wish I had some names. I know there are some um, museums that are doing visual or visual virtual tours so you should use your little google machines and find some of those because i want to do that as well hey maybe we could host a virtual tour maybe that can be our maybe someday we'll figure out how to do that (laughs) uh yeah well um stay inside and uh go look at some stuff on your google machines and uh remember it's just art.